1: New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, rape, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
0: In the early morning of October 1st, 1979, a terrified woman laid on the floor of her living room, her heart beating out of her chest. Her hands were bound and her boyfriend was tied up in the bedroom.
1: She could hear the masked robber rummaging through her kitchen. He said he was only there for money, but his calm demeanor made her suspect he wanted something more, something much worse.
0: She feverishly wiggled her wrists, trying with all her might to break the knot, until finally…
1: It broke. Her eyes shot towards the kitchen. The robber stood, eating food, facing the other direction. She leapt to her feet and sprinted for the door. She burst into the open air, screaming her lungs out, attempting to wake the neighbors. She saw the lights flash on in the houses around her and turned her head. To see the masked man fleeing in the other direction. She
0: had done it. She had escaped from the Golden State Killer.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a podcast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we'll conclude our look into the crimes of Joseph James DeAngelo, better known as the Golden State Killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: Last week, we covered D'Angelo's tenure as a serial prowler and rapist in the Sacramento area between 1974 and 1979. While his crimes earned him various monikers, he led a seemingly average life as a cop sworn to protect the same community he stalked.
1: This week, we'll cover the final and deadliest phase of his criminal career, which saw him venture from his usual hunting grounds to Southern California.
0: For an entire year, Joseph James D'Angelo allegedly broke into a series of homes in Visalia, California. His crimes at the time earned him the nickname the Visalia Ransacker. But his time as the Ransacker ended in 1975 after a close encounter with authorities. He remained law-abiding for a time, but it seems his bloodlust resurfaced.
1: D'Angelo got a new job in the Auburn Police Department and is suspected of assaulting women as the East Area Rapist at the same time. By 1979, 29-year-old D'Angelo had allegedly committed countless ransackings, raped nearly 50 women, and killed three people across Northern California.
0: The East Area Rapist's final attack in the East Bay occurred on June 25, 1979. As it's theorized, he left Northern California shortly after. It's likely he was driven away from his hunting grounds by frightened homeowners who increased their home security measures and purchased a plethora of firearms. This compromised his ability to control his victims, taking the pleasure out of his crimes.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. Over the years, as the Golden State Killer's crimes became more brazen, one thing remained the same, the location of his attacks. Even in his early days, his preference for home invasions was clear. He relished breaking into homes and intruding on people's most intimate spaces. According to criminologist and author Dr. Scott A. Bond. the signature is not required in order to commit the crime. Rather, it serves the emotional or psychological needs of the offender. The signature comes from within the psyche of the offender, and it reflects a deep fantasy need that the killer has about his victims.
1: When breaking into homes became riskier for him, the man who eventually became the Golden State Killer could have changed his signature location. He could have carried out his attacks outside of the home, where the victims would not be as prepared to fight back. However, where he committed his crimes was just as important as the crime itself. His psychological fulfillment could not be met any other way.
0: On top of that, a new threat had recently taken hold of Sacramento and inspired more hypervigilance. A married couple, the Gallegos, committed a series of abductions and murders that further intensified neighborhood vigilance and local police presence. If D'Angelo was to carry on as the East Area Rapist, he would be placing himself in a higher risk of capture.
1: And so it seems he searched for fresh territory and the unsuspecting victims that came with it. By September 1979, D'Angelo allegedly zeroed in on the small coastal town of Goleta, near Santa Barbara, California. There was now a nearly 400-mile buffer between his hometown and this new place. He hoped it would be enough to get authorities off his trail.
0: By the end of 1979, D'Angelo had been fired from the Auburn Police Department for petty theft. Although it's unknown what he did for work in the early 80s, many speculate he chose a field that enabled him to venture far from home.
1: He most likely got a job as a truck driver, it was the perfect cover for his constant visits to Southern California.
0: In September, 33-year-old D'Angelo is suspected to have carefully planned his first attack in Galita. He selected his target, then made hand-drawn maps of the neighborhood, noting creeks and back alleys in case he needed to make a quick escape.
1: He kept the names of potential victims on the back of his maps, for easy reference. His attention to details showed the extent of his need for control. He had to know everything long before he would step inside his victim's home.
0: D'Angelo also took comfort in the knowledge that switching towns would provide him with a blank slate to commit crimes. His time as a police officer had taught him that police departments rarely communicated with each other. It would take a near eternity before Sacramento police realized the East Area Rapist had rebranded and moved south.
1: In the early morning of October 1st, 1979, D'Angelo broke into a home on Queen Anne Lane, Like in past cases, the couple reported waking up to a masked intruder flashing a light in their faces. Through clenched teeth, he demanded to know where they hid their money.
0: He made his victims think he was only there for cash. He may have done this to make his victims more cooperative, as they may have thought he wouldn't harm them. However, it's more likely that it was just part of D'Angelo's fun. According to Dr. Deborah Sherman Coughlin, author of Vulture, Profiling Sadistic Serial Killers, sadists love to fool people. They enjoy acting like puppet masters, making people dance to their whims. D'Angelo, in particular, presumably took pleasure in manipulating his victims' emotions.
1: That October morning on Queen Anne Lane, he tied his victims up, then rummaged through their drawers. To keep with his ruse, he gathered together a mere three dollars and change.
0: The man who eventually became known during this period as the original Night Stalker then dragged the girlfriend to the living room and left the boyfriend in the bedroom. He threatened to kill them both if either tried to escape. Then he went into the kitchen.
1: As he focused on making himself a snack, his would-be victims made a break for it and managed to escape from the house. The girlfriend's screams alerted a neighbor to the man's presence, forcing him to flee.
0: Having already familiarized himself with the neighborhood's creeks and back streets, he vanished into the darkness of the night.
1: Even though he had escaped, D'Angelo was ostensibly furious. He had gotten cocky and botched two assaults in a row. His bloodlust was going unsated, and his frustration only grew.
0: It would only be a matter of time before the original Night Stalker's frustration turned deadly.
1: When we return, the original Night Stalker won't fail again. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be
0: 33-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo allegedly botched his second home invasion in a row. He evidently spent the next three months fuming, but then returned to Southern California to finish what he started.
1: On December 29, 1979, the original night stalker once again stalked the small town of Goleta. To psych himself up for his next sexual assault, he spent the night ransacking houses all throughout the neighborhood.
0: One couple spotted a man run across their living room as they arrived at their home. As they went inside, they found that nothing was missing, but their poor dog had been brutally punched in their absence.
1: At a nearby condo, the ransacker left footprints of his Adidas sneakers all around the building. He also left behind proof that he had squatted in a vacant condo next door.
0: The next day, December 30th, he broke into the home of Dr. Robert Offerman and his girlfriend Deborah Manning.
1: D'Angelo likely stuck with his traditional M.O. He shone a light in his victim's sleeping faces and told them in a low, gruff voice, I'm here for your money.
0: Thinking quickly, Deborah slipped her rings off her fingers and put them beneath the mattress. Had the original Night Stalker been there to rob them, it would have been a brilliant move. Unfortunately, he was there to do much worse.
1: D'Angelo allegedly demanded that Deborah tie Robert's hands with twine.
0: Deborah thought she could be sneaky once more. She tied the knot, but left it loose,
1: hoping her boyfriend could break free. Their attacker pulled Deborah to the side and began to tie her hands behind her back. With his attention on Deborah, Robert saw his chance and slipped his ties.
0: Robert lunged at his attacker, but the man was too quick. He raised his gun and pulled the trigger three times.
1: Neighbors reported hearing a series of gunshots followed by a pause, and then one final shot.
0: D'Angelo allegedly shot Dr. Offerman three times in his chest, then shot Deborah in the back of her head. This time, when things didn't go according to plan, D'Angelo apparently wanted to ensure the couple didn't live
1: to talk about it. He quickly fled from the scene, but he was unaware that he didn't need to. Even though neighbors had heard the gunfire, none of them called the police. Deborah and Robert's bodies were found the next day, when their friends came over to play a game of tennis.
0: He may not have intended to kill them, but the thrill their deaths provided was overwhelming. He was no longer seeking to rob or rape. Now he thirsted for murder.
1: With this new plan in mind, the original Night Stalker made another trek south three months later. He chose Ventura, California as his new hunting ground. After staking out the neighborhood, he decided to invade a hillside home on High Point Drive belonging to Lyman and Charlene Smith.
0: Lyman was a promising attorney on the shortlist to be a Ventura County Supreme Court judge. His wife, Charlene, was an interior decorator responsible for their stylish Ocean View home.
1: There's no doubt that after three incidents gone awry, D'Angelo would have taken extreme precautions for this attack. Early in the morning of March 13, 1980, the Smiths woke up to the sight of a masked intruder brandishing a knife.
0: D'Angelo tied them with drapery cord, using an ornate diamond knot common to people with nautical training. He wanted to guarantee they could never
1: break free. We don't know what transpired in those early hours on High Point Drive. If this crime was similar to D'Angelo's suspected M.O., he likely spent hours rifling through the home.
0: DNA evidence later proved that he sexually assaulted Charlene Smith at least once that morning, and he likely did so
1: multiple times. Then D'Angelo took a log from their fireplace and bludgeoned the couple to death.
0: Now that he had actively decided to kill, D'Angelo preferred to do so in a lengthy and personal way. Criminologists Ronald Holmes, Stephen Holmes, and James DeBurger wrote that process-focused serial killers derive satisfaction from the torture and prolonged suffering of their victims. They find it sexually arousing, but the act of murder is normally the most satisfying and final expression of their power and control over their victims. Such behavior is empowering because the killer gets to decide when, how, and under what circumstances his victims will die.
1: D'Angelo's depraved longing for control was now itself out of control.
0: The Smith's murders would not be discovered until later that morning. Lyman's 12-year-old son showed up to his father and stepmother's home to mow the lawn. After searching the house, he was met with the grisly sight of their bound and beaten bodies.
1: For Lyman's boy, this was the most traumatizing thing he could ever see. But for D'Angelo, it's likely nothing had ever felt better.
0: After months of failure, D'Angelo's fantasy home invasion finally went according to plan. For a methodical criminal like D'Angelo, the rush was intoxicating. The thrill kept him satisfied for another five months.
1: D'Angelo felt the itch of his bloodlust eventually. On August 19, 1980, the original Night Stalker set his sights on the affluent beach community of Dana Point in Southern Orange County.
0: Around 11 p.m., he prowled outside the bedroom window of medical student Keith Harrington and nurse Patrice Harrington. He had no trouble entering the newlyweds' home as he let himself in through an unlocked sliding door.
1: He played out his favorite fantasy once more. He bound the couple and sexually assaulted Patrice. When he was finished, he bludgeoned the couple to death with an unknown weapon.
0: He changed things up by placing a bedsheet over the couple's heads and untying their bindings before he left. He likely made these shifts in an attempt to mislead investigators, but fibers and rope marks on their wrists led investigators to believe the original Night Stalker had struck again.
1: As D'Angelo apparently attempted to shake up his M.O., his home life was going through changes of its own. Sometime in 1981, his wife Sharon gave birth to a baby girl. D'Angelo was now a father for the first time.
0: Fatherhood gave D'Angelo a good reason to press pause on his homicidal urges. For half a year, D'Angelo managed to live a normal, non-violent life. He was able to compartmentalize his life as a new father, and serial killer. According to criminal psychologist Dr. Katherine Ramsland, this is not uncommon among serial criminals. Their ability to be normal parents shows the dimensionality of offenders who tend to be portrayed as uniformly evil. They have many sides, an array of emotions, an ability to care.
1: Yet even while compartmentalizing, D'Angelo's violent side would eventually appear again.
0: D'Angelo's fury was evidently next unleashed on February 5, 1981. He stalked the home of Manuela and David Wittoon in Irvine, California, only a few miles north of his last murder in Dana Point.
1: D'Angelo probably arrived at the Wittoon home expecting to find both Manuela and David. However, when he showed up to the Irvine home, Manuela was on her own.
0: David had been hospitalized for an illness, leaving Manuela even more vulnerable than he could have hoped. He pried open a back door and made his way to her bedroom.
1: In line with the original Night Stalker's new M.O., he sexually assaulted her, then bludgeoned her to death. When he was finished, he packed up his weapon and ligatures, leaving no evidence behind.
0: D'Angelo, it seemed, had no interest in slowing down. Like Clockwork, the original Night Stalker, who would eventually come to be known as the Golden State Killer, returned only a few months later.
1: He targeted the small town of Goleta once more. On July 27, 1981, he zeroed in on yet another young couple, Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez.
0: Sherry had been staying in the home as a favor to a friend. That night, she invited her boyfriend, Greg, to stay over. It was an unfortunate night for both of them to be there.
1: The couple was awakened by the masked prowler. D'Angelo allegedly spouted his usual threats, but he quickly lost control of the situation. Greg Sanchez standing at 6-2, decided to fight. He rushed his attacker.
0: The Golden State killer's heart pounded in fear. Wracked with nerves, he pulled the trigger. The bullet wounded Sanchez, knocking him to the floor.
1: Then, D'Angelo allegedly beat him to death. Once finished, he bludgeoned Sherry, just like his previous victims.
0: While D'Angelo had succeeded in his original goal, that night shook him to his core.
1: Former Contra Costa County detective Paul Holes theorized that combative victims like Greg Sanchez made D'Angelo too nervous to carry out another assault. After all, D'Angelo was nearly 40, while his targets remained young and dangerous.
0: After his tussle with Greg Sanchez, D'Angelo went five whole years without committing any murders. It's not clear what D'Angelo was up to during this break, although he likely just spent more time with his family.
1: D'Angelo must have fought a constant battle with his baser urges to avoid committing murder. After all, he had previously only gone without killing for months at a time.
0: Sadly, his murder sobriety would not last forever. A 2012 paper in the Iranian Journal of Medical Law by Dr. N. Meira and A.S. Peruz offers some insight into D'Angelo's psyche. They claim that once a killer has tasted the success of a kill and is not apprehended, it will ultimately mean he will strike again. It's like an addictive drug.
1: His desire to control a person's fate was D'Angelo's drug and he would backslide into his old habits hard. In 1986, the Golden State Killer reemerged in Orange County to claim his youngest victim.
0: After this, the Golden State Killer meets his own end. And now back to the story.
1: After a five-year hiatus, Joseph James D'Angelo, the man charged with being the Golden State Killer, decided to take himself out of murder retirement.
0: On May 4, 1986, it's suspected that 40-year-old D'Angelo once again prowled the quiet suburb of Irvine, California. That night, his bloodlust focused on Janelle Cruz, a teenager who was home alone with her
1: boyfriend. In years past, a young couple had been his idea of the perfect target, But D'Angelo was getting old, and he was apparently no longer confident in his physical prowess.
0: Instead of attacking immediately, the Golden State Killer watched the home and waited for Janelle's boyfriend to leave.
1: As soon as Janelle was alone, he broke into her bedroom. There, he unleashed his most vicious attack.
0: He sexually assaulted her, then bludgeoned her face beyond recognition. Authorities had to use dental records to confirm her identity. The Golden State Killer had suppressed his rage for five years. He unleashed it all upon poor Janelle.
1: The same year D'Angelo allegedly returned to murder, he became a father for the second time. A man notorious for his hatred of women only ever had daughters.
0: With the new addition to his family, D'Angelo retreated to a quiet life in Sacramento. After a few decades, the Golden State Killer started to fade from public memory.
1: After 12 years of terrorizing communities all throughout California, Janelle Cruz's 1986 murder was the last known crime attributed to the Golden State Killer. During that time, the ransacker, rapist, and killer was responsible for 13 murders, nearly 50 sexual assaults, and countless burglaries.
0: Dr. Michael Stone, a professor of forensic psychiatry, explained that D'Angelo's retirement from a criminal career was probably due to his old age. Stone wrote that as men grow older, their testosterone levels are down, their capacity to perform is weakened, the prey drive is lessened. Elderly D'Angelo might not have had the same urges as he had as a young man.
1: Despite his inactivity, investigators continued to pursue the killer. They doubted he would stop his attacks overnight. They reasoned that if he had been able to change locations and MO before, he could have done it again. The only way they believed the Golden State Killer would stop was if he was dead or imprisoned.
0: In reality, he was hiding in plain sight. Although he lived in the suburbs, he wasn't living a quiet life. His marriage was on the rocks and it eventually reached a tipping point with the birth of his third daughter in 1989.
1: Sharon D'Angelo moved out and filed for divorce. She briefly got a restraining order citing domestic issues. Yet in time, even these domestic issues would pass. Sharon eventually went back in her decision to divorce D'Angelo. The two remained legally married, but lived in separate houses.
0: This arrangement came as no surprise to their neighbors. They reported that when D'Angelo visited his estranged wife, he yelled at her from the driveway and never stepped foot inside.
1: Moments like these, when D'Angelo's darker nature bubbled to the surface, became more common as he aged. He eventually gained a reputation of being a moody and foul-mouthed old man.
0: As his family life fell apart in the early 1990s, he found steady work as a truck mechanic at a Save Mart distribution center. He worked the night shift for 27 years until his retirement. There, co-workers thought of him as an average family guy.
1: Save Mart workers never imagined that their longtime co-worker was the same man that terrified the community in the 1970s that same man still took pleasure in tormenting his victims decades later.
0: Throughout the early 90s, the Golden State Killer called his past victims, threatening to come back and kill them.
1: David Watoon, the husband of one of the women D'Angelo allegedly murdered in 1981, reported getting unsettling calls that ranged from heavy breaths to threats on his life. He regularly received these calls for 30 years.
0: This may have been a way for D'Angelo to relive his murders. It speaks to his controlling nature and desire to be a puppet master to his victims. He was still able to affect them even if he couldn't physically attack them.
1: But the taunting calls told police that the Golden State Killer was still out there. So they kept looking. In 2001, DNA evidence linked the East Area Rapist's late 1970s attacks to the Southland's Golden State Killer spree in the early 1980s. These results proved once and for all that these attacks were committed by the same person.
0: This discovery inspired Detective Paul Holes, an investigator with the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office, who had pursued the Golden State Killer for 24 years, In 2017, after decades of dead ends, he looked to advances in genealogy to help him solve the case.
1: Detective Holes believed he could access the databases of private gene sequencing companies like 23andMe. If anyone on those sites was related to the killer, his team might finally catch the elusive murderer. Of course, this had never been done before.
0: Other investigative agencies throughout California also voiced their apprehension. Most of the DNA evidence had degraded over the past 40 years, and this style of genetic investigation might be entirely impossible.
1: Detective Hull sympathized with their worries, but he was undeterred. He searched for a well-preserved sample, convinced this could finally help him solve the case.
0: As fate would have it, the Ventura County Crime Lab turned out to have an untouched sample from the killer's 1980 assault of Charlene Smith.
1: The team of investigators decided to upload the killer's DNA profile to GEDmatch, a website popular among amateur genealogists. In violation of the terms of use, they had to lie to create a fake profile for the Golden State Killer.
0: Despite the legal and ethical concerns their methods raised, investigators insisted the deception was worth it. The killer's gene sequencing was completed in January 2018, and the data showed an extensive
1: lineage. Detective Holes reached out to Barbara Ray Venter, a woman dedicated to helping adoptees find their birth parents using DNA. With her expertise, Barbara created over two dozen possible family trees based on the killer's DNA results.
0: Over the course of three months, the team narrowed down the list to nine possible suspects. By acquiring the DNA of a willing family member, they were able to narrow it down to six suspects. Naturally, 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo was among them.
1: Investigators staked out his home for one week and followed him around his Citrus Heights neighborhood. They watched him diligently, waiting for him to let down his guard and his genetic material.
0: One afternoon, D'Angelo used a tissue to blow his nose. He threw it in a public garbage can and walked away.
1: Seizing his opportunity, D'Angelo's tail rushed to the garbage can and snatched the tissue up as evidence.
0: Law enforcement tested the tissue and it came back a 100% match. After 40 years of searching, police had finally uncovered the alleged identity of the Golden State Killer.
1: On April 24, 2018, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo. That same evening, authorities showed up to the suburban home he shared with his daughter and grandchild. They read him his rights and put him in cuffs.
0: D'Angelo responded by saying he had a roast in the oven.
1: At 2.29 a.m. the next day, he was booked into Sacramento County Jail. Detective Paul Holes, who pushed for the controversial method of DNA matching, retired three days later, knowing his decades-long search had finally paid off.
0: Since his arrest, a now 74-year-old D'Angelo has said little. He's been housed in the psychiatric ward of the county jail on suicide watch. It's reported that the arrest came as an extreme shock to his family, who have since cooperated with authorities. His estranged wife, Sharon, shut down her law offices shortly after
1: D'Angelo's arrest. In his most recent court appearance on January 22, 2020, An emotionless but visibly frail D'Angelo appeared before a judge and the media. It was announced he would be prosecuted for 26 counts of murder, assault, and kidnapping. Unfortunately, most of his crimes as the East Area Rapist fell well outside the statute of limitations.
0: Some survivors and their families have since expressed interest in attending future hearings. They wish to see the face of the man they lived in fear of for so long and ask him why he hurt them. Others have shown up to court purely to express their disdain for him. At one of his hearings, as he was being escorted from the room, a voice from the crowd yelled out, ROT IN HELL!
1: Prosecutors have stated that they will seek the death penalty, despite Governor Gavin Newsom's recent push to end the policy. Police departments throughout the state have opened investigations into other cold cases that could see DeAngelo's tally of crimes rise in the future.
0: Joseph James DeAngelo's arrest has brought some closure to those he victimized during his 12-year crime spree. However, for others, his life is a grim reminder that the killer lived to an old age after cutting many lives short.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Joseph James D'Angelo, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Creep Among Us, the Golden State Killer After the Arrest by Ann Penn, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Have a killer week.
0: Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.